Mindfulness Mode 325. If everybody thinks you're crazy or that they don't know what you're going to do, you're probably not going to get picked on. You're listening to Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Well, Mindful Tribe, it's Saturday as I uh, record this, and this is going live tomorrow. I uh, received an email just this morning, just actually about three hours ago, from Emma and Emma is from the UK. She says, Bruce, I just wanted to write to say a big thank you for your podcasts. I live in Yorkshire in the UK, a beautiful place called the Home Valley, but I have an early commute to work. This involves taking the M1 and the M62 motorways, which even at 7 a.m. can be pretty busy and hectic. So I really appreciate being able to tune into your podcasts. I love the feeling of calm and connection that hearing your voice brings. Thanks for that, Emma. The podcasts are always inspiring and interesting and are a great way to start my day. So thank you, in all caps. If you are ever planning a visit to the UK, you would be very welcome to stay with us here in beautiful Yorkshire. And I would say the same to you too, Emma. If you're ever visiting Canada, contact me so you can stay with us at our house with love and best wishes, Emma. So yes, great to hear from my listeners just like Emma in the UK. And I would love to hear from you as well. Bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. I've got a very interesting, fascinating kind of guy with me today. I've got Devin Galladay with me today. Hey, Devin, are you in mindfulness mode? I am, and I'm grateful for it. (laughs) That's awesome. Devin Galladay is editor-in-chief of In the Know Traveler, and he's visited 80 five countries around the world. So that is a good chunk of the world. He's in the process of marrying his wife 100 times in 100 countries, 20 times in 15 countries so far. So he's got a ways to go. (laughs) This is a very interesting challenge, Devin. He's appeared on Fox, NBC, Reinvention Radio, among others. His writing has been seen on the Huffington Post and Travel Age West, the Citroen Review, Skylife Magazine. Now, Devin has written a memoir, and it's 10,000 Miles with My Dead Father's Ashes, and that will be available in bookstores in September of 2018. And it answers the question, what do you do when you lose your father's ashes. Now, I don't know whether I should be smiling right now or not, Devin, but I'm going to find out as we talk more about this. But first, what does mindfulness mean in your life, Devin? It's actually, I think, a major component. Um, you know, we had a, a little bit of a chance to, to talk a, a couple of weeks ago, and mm-hmm. my own history is a little bit you know, I wish I could say, oh, everything was peaceful and wonderful, and I've made a series of just wonderful conscious decisions, and that wasn't my story. And what I ended up needing to do was really taking a look at my life in a, in a practical sense. And so when you say mindfulness, for me, it is the opposite of reaction. In other words, as an example, I would have a feeling, 
And then I would want to do something with that feeling. I wanted to change the feeling or run from the feeling or get angry or something. And then that reaction would lead to my actions being terrible. So the mindfulness part of it is me sort of taking back control of my actions. And so to me, it's all about uh, how do I stay in the present? Because most of sort of like the negative impacts of my reaction come from me projecting something out into the future, or me kind of staring back at the past and, and having issues with those kinds of things. And so I, I would say that my life is good because I practice mindfulness. And I'm not perfect at it, but, you know, it's absolutely a step in the right direction. Devin, did you always want to be a world traveler, even when you were a little child? You know, I wish I could say that world traveler was the answer. I think probably what I wanted more than anything else, and I, I think I alluded to it already, is that I think I wanted out if that makes any sense. Like wherever it was that I was at, I didn't necessarily want to be that. So I think in terms of mindfulness, in terms of sort of like my own well-being, it became let's go explore the world around me. And uh, I think really what happened was when I was in my 20s, I had a, a dear friend of mine who was a world traveler and she was everywhere. And I was kind of in a you know, a state of flux in my life. I was just leaving a career. I was in my mid-20s. I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go get a backpack and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce around Europe for nine months. And I didn't really have much money and none of that seemed to matter at the time. I got on a plane and, uh, and ironically, before I left, she goes, you know, once you'll do this, once you do this trip, you're going to want to go everywhere all the time. And she was right. And I was just thinking, oh, I need to get away. I need to get away from it all. And I started backpacking and I fell in love. There was something about travel for me that was just, it was amazing. Uh, I, I can't say enough. I mean, I think we're supposed to know each other. And I think once you start traveling, you get to uh, sort of learn that even though you may have a good sense of how the world is supposed to be, you go to another place that is based on a different culture and you see that that world can work in a variety of ways. It's incredibly um, uh, humbling, I think, and mind expanding to see the possibilities of what we as people, as humans do. It's remarkable. So in some ways, as you traveled to these different countries, were you escaping what you already lived? Is that one of the reasons you think you did so much traveling? I think the first trip was that. Now, you know, as I, as I said, I was kind of like in a state of flux. And then over time, I kind of got my, my stuff together, for lack of a better description. And in so doing, I had uh, really started appreciating what we, again, are all capable of doing. And so that exploration which it ultimately came for me, was what really inspired me to travel. So for me now going, to, you know, I've already done sort of like the Paris and, and the Rome, Italy, and don't get me wrong, I love those places, but I'm drawn to a lot of places that people tend to not go because I want to learn about those areas. I want to have that experience. And so do you still do just as much traveling as ever? I, you know, 
under a normal circumstance, I would say absolutely. Uh, you know, as I've gotten older, I have older family. My my daughter is now older. My wife's family is older, and so there's just a little bit more logistics to caring for family and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so the last couple of years have been a little bit slower, but in general, there was a period in time, especially because of in the no traveler where I was probably averaging eight to 10 trips a year, every single year for probably about 10 years. Well, so let's talk about In the Know Traveler. When did you start that and tell us more about it? I started in 2004 and to be quite honest with you, it was a response to uh, 9-11. Oh. Yeah, and so what I had done, I I saw a lot of, and, and I guess the word that I want to say, it's not quite the right word, is patriotism. I saw a lot of patriotism. And I think when something as devastating like that happens, we kind of circle the wagons. And there was a part of me that also understood that because I had already traveled so much at that point in time in my life, that I knew that there were sort of like there were bad folks kind of everywhere. Like, you know, there's just places in the United States you could go that are going to be challenging. And this is going to be true around the world. And so I felt that we were sort of having difficulties with sort of like entire nations and regions rather than looking for the bad guys, if that makes any sense. And so what I was hoping to do is when I made In the No Traveler was create an environment where it was a lot of first person, first hand stories of people going to places that not everybody goes to. So, uh, of course, we have stories on Paris, but we also have stories on Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and we have stories about Greenland and places that where you just assume, well, that's got to be weird or dangerous or something. And because uh, if you read that first firsthand account, you may start realizing, well, they had fun and they had an interesting time and they tried all the different food and and maybe I could do that. And so I was hoping through... Um, uh, through watching and reading about other people's experiences that you might be wanting to go have your own experience around the world and sort of broaden your horizons. And I think on a, on a, a more practical level, the United States, uh, your average citizen, I think has about 30% has a passport. And I felt that we needed to see that change just so we didn't constantly feel as though that we were being attacked. And that was kind of my response to 9-11. And so tell me about your book, 10,000 Miles with My Dead Father's Ashes. When did that come about, the idea for that? Well, that came about, um, I, I went back to school as sort of an elder statesman. Uh, you know, again, when I came out of high school, I wasn't probably in the clearest of consciousness. And when I was in my late 30s, I decided to go back to, to school. And um, I wanted to tell stories, which was sort of ironic. I remember being told in the third grade and, and, you know, this is the opposite of sort of my mindfulness is that my, my teacher said, well, you should take a lot of woodshop classes. You're never going to be a writer. <laughs> I sort of held on to that notion as being real for years. And I loved reading. So there was a part of me that was really heartbroken by this. Mm -hmm. And by the time I went back to school, I kind of knew that I wanted to be telling stories. And one of the first stories that I had written was about my father. And my father, uh, you know, I think you and I have talked about it a little bit, was, was a con man. 
He was he was a well-intentioned, heart of gold con man who made a lot of terrible choices. And I think when I started writing about him, his 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 last request, according to his seventh wife, was to return home and to be scattered off the coast of Cadiz, Spain. Um, he was not Spanish, and it's highly likely that he had never been to Spain. Um, but I I ended up taking him anyway. Um, and I enlisted the help of the tourism boards because he wanted Ave Maria to be sung at the same time. And, uh, you know, by the time I went back to school and this, this stuff had happened to me, I was really, first off, it, it's easy to look at your parent with sort of like a critical eye. Um, but it's also challenging to understand that they're human and they're wonderful and they do these great things and then they do these kind of sad and tragic things. And ultimately, I think my book writing uh, was about my, my learning how to accept and appreciate him for who he was, which was, you know, in many cases, a sort of a tragic soul. And in many other cases, really like the best guy ever and my greatest hero. So uh, having said all that, I managed to lose the ashes, which is sort of the framework of the story. Yeah, what happened to his ashes? That's, that's the big question. Well, it's, 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 not an, it's not an easy answer, but I, there was some logistical things going on and uh, I left him in a car that got, uh, that got taken. Oh, so you never recovered them then? Well, I, I, I think what my publisher wants me to tell you is that uh, you're supposed to buy the book. Uh, but what I can tell you is that's really not the crux of the story. The crux of the story is sort of like growing up and having a certain sense of who you are because of who your parents are. And that evolution of being able to sort of take what you like and leaving the rest and learning from his mistakes, I think is part of the process of what really the book is about. The book is about how do you love somebody who is a really flawed person and how do you sort of rectify who it is that you want and hope to be versus from where you came from. Was your father a mindful kind of man? I think upon good days. I think what he was, was a caring man. And I think, you know, he was one of 13 children. He was uh, a part of the eldest set of three uh, sets of twins in five years. And he came from a very uh, poor section of Chicago. Uh, this is the 1940s. And he led, he did not have any advantages, you know, uh, looking back, I had way, way, he gave me far more advantages than he was given to be sure. And so I don't know if mindful for much of his life was really an option. I think that he lived by how he was feeling one moment at a time to the next. And so I think when he was given the opportunity he was mindful, but I don't believe that he felt that he had many opportunities. I think that he carried with him a lot of fear about, you know, what's going to, what's coming around the bend. 
And what so, is one of the most bizarre stories of his con artistry? One of the most bizarre. I mean, there's so many. He did so many bizarre things. I mean, just from a, a I remember when I was a little kid, I would come home and nobody skied, but all of a sudden there would be like 25 sets of skis in the living room. He was a storyteller by his, his nature. And, you know, I think one of the things that I remember that pops up, and, and I write about this in the book, is that we had a furniture store in Los Angeles. I mean, this is going back 30 years, but he, he had a, uh, we had this furniture store, we worked together and it was really sort of like, you might buy a table, but really you were going to buy a story. And so the stories weren't true about the table. And we, he had this one story that was really kind of genius. And I'm almost a little embarrassed to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway, is that okay? Yeah, that is. So we bought paintings by the pound. They were not quality works of art. Uh, and we, we plastered them all over the walls and had them in stacks and people would go through them. And one of the stories that he told that eventually be kind of almost became like, how far can we take this story? And it was the story of a young artist who might have been from Spain or Amsterdam or from North America. And he tragically was a he was an art student and quite quite talented, but he had lost his eyesight in the war. And he discovered that it wasn't the finished product that he missed. It, he, what he missed was the, the smell of the oils, of the brush hitting the canvas, or maybe it was the, the charcoal hitting the paper. Uh, and it was the lines. It was, the, it was sort of like almost the Tao of, of drawing and creating and allowing yourself to be a conduit. And so what he had done was he had, he had stayed with... Uh, uh, he'd stayed in contact with other art students. And what they would do is they would sketch out a little, a little tree or they'd sketch out a house next to a brook and he would still paint and they would stand next to him. And they'd tell him to make sure that he didn't go outside of the lines. And over time, he discovered this was his calling, even though he knew he wasn't going to be an incredible artist. And so he painted nonstop. He was quite prolific. And they, he found that his friends couldn't watch him all the time. So what they had done was they had trained a dog that anytime he would go outside of the line, the dog would bark. And this was the inspiration for the first seeing eye dog. Oh. Oh. So this, this was not a true story, but I think a fun one. And and a lot of paintings sold, and I and I apologize. There are probably a few people running around Los Angeles saying, "No, really, they this was this painting was the inspiration for the first Seeing Eye dog." <laughs> Man, you 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 have quite a sense of humor, I think, as a result of the personality of your father. Would you say that's part of the reason? That's where some of your sense of humor came from. Oh, totally. I mean, he was, my father was a really funny guy. He was an incredibly clever guy. And so when I say that if he was given more opportunities, I think he would have been dangerous. I think that's because he was just a, a smart, clever guy. And then there's, there's just a sense of like, you know, you can either point at your history and go, wow, that was terrible. What was me? Or you can kind of just revel in 
what you were given. Like that's, that's my life. You know what I mean? As ridiculous and as absurd as it may sound to a lot of people, it's kind of, you know, so I might as well have fun with it, right? This is what happened. And so I, I don't believe that's not me. You know, today, that's absolutely not me. I have a very different life and lifestyle. But at the same time, I can kind of embrace this is from whence I came. He was a nut. And uh, he was he was at the same time a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And how much time do you spend writing every day or every week? You know, it really depends on the week and, and what project I have going on in terms of the travel writing, which I'm doing a little bit less these days. And I do have a, a lot of people who who write for me. Um, I try to make it a practice of at least sitting down for 20 minutes a day. And then that may go as high as three or four hours a day, depending if I'm working on a larger project or I'm inspired or something like that. But what I try to do is that I try to make time um, I don't know if this is going to make much sense, but I kind of see myself as a writer. I see myself who sh- as somebody who should be writing, and that's whether I'm inspired or not, because I think probably the biggest part of writing is the fortitude. And I think that all wraps up into a big knotted ball of yarn of mindfulness and determination and consistency, because that's where you get your stuff done. Like my book wouldn't have gotten done just because I wanted to sit down and I was inspired to write. So it was about sort of like the consistency and the demand of myself to make sure that I continue to do that. Right. That's wonderful. It really is. Were you ever bullied or were you ever a bully? Do you have a story about <laughs> bullying where, where mindfulness would have made a difference? Yeah, no, totally. Totally. Yes, I was I was bullied um, when I was, geez, I must have been six, seven years old. And um, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, I describe, again, this is something that I, that comes from the book. Um, you know, my mother thought that I was a Barbie doll. And so she would quite literally dress me in pantaloons and ruffled shirts and buckled shoes. And I grew up in like 1970s Los Angeles. And that is, Uh, That is a recipe for getting picked on. As I recall, every boy was wearing like Sears, tough skin jeans, and everybody was wearing like sort of work boots. And, you know, that's the way my father dressed and that's what I wanted. And so I would get dressed up in these costumes that were, it was, I mean, again, you can look back and you smile at it, but at the time it was just demoralizing. I would go, who wears velvet knickers? Like <laughs> other than like somebody from a, a French dandy from the 1700s. Um, and, but I was, I don't even know where my mother found culottes for boys, but that's how I was sent to school. And so that without questions separated me from, I think most kids. And I took some lumps over that. And, you know, I, again, I don't know if it's ironic, but once my father got wind of it and my father was a, a pretty prideful guy. And I was, you know, like I was a, I'm still a kind of a a slight built guy. And my father was just a wide shouldered, big forearms, the whole kind of thing. And he was very much like 
you know, I want to transmit my father and use his language, but that would probably be inappropriate for a family audience. But he was, he was, he made it essentially very clear that you are going to stand up for yourself. You are getting into fist fights wherever necessary. And he took me in the backyard and, to- and taught me to do things that really probably on the edge of right and wrong. Mm. Um, but looking back at it, it was something that I think for me as, uh, as, a, as a young man, certainly, you know, considering the time, it was just part of the, what needed to take place. I'm kind so of, he taught you to defend yourself and did you do it? Oh yeah, no, I totally did it. I totally yeah. did it. Um, and it happened a number of times. And I think there was a point where I, I reveled in it. I think there was a point where, uh, and I remember dad telling me, he goes, you know, if, if everybody thinks you're crazy or that they don't know what you're going to do, you're probably not going to get picked on and you're mm. probably not going to get messed with. And he had described- and Did you find that to be true? I did actually, because I was, I was one of the smallest kids in school. Um, you know, you have those pictures where you're all lined up and I'm always in the first row because I was just like a peanut of a guy. Yeah. And, uh, but I found that to be true, that if you, if you growl hard enough and you act like a nut and you swing for the fences, people are like, okay, all right, point, point taken, point taken. <laughs> we, yeah. You know, that doesn't need to continue. A- a- again, I mean, I think it was one of those lessons that we get to learn, uh, early on, it's certainly not like a long-term goal. And at the same time, you know, you have to be, uh, you have to be present. Yes. There was probably a far better way to handle it at the time. Uh, and that was not the way that I was given. He was. So absolutely- what would you recommend if you had a son who is the age that you're describing, what would you recommend to your son to do? Does it involve mindfulness at all? Oh, today? Yeah, no, yeah, totally, today. totally. Well, uh, you know, I didn't have a son, and I'm, uh, and my daughter, who is now 18, there was a combination of both. There was, uh, you know, there was a point of, hey, you, you have to defend yourself if you have to defend yourself. Like, if you right. have to, if somebody's, if somebody's going to start pushing you or physically, you know, assaulting you, then you have to defend yourself. And I believe that's to be true. The good news is, for the most part, in most people's lives, that's not happening all the time. But as a little kid, when people are pushing their envelopes and finding out who they are and flexing their little muscles, I think that's a different story. So part of it was, yes, you walk away. And yes, you try to find compassion for somebody who's filled with anger. And yes, if somebody is going to hit you, you hit them back like crazy until they stop. So, you know, I, I don't know if that comes across as mindful, um, but I think that's probably, you know, part of the bigger picture is that sometimes you have to take action that it's not part of your nature. And sometimes you have to do things that that isn't sort of like necessarily matching to what you want to be. You know, I mean, sure. the good news is like, personally, I haven't been in any kind of altercation in, in a great many years. Um, and, and looking back, I think many of the altercations I was in was just because of me, you know, not because I was dressed funny, but because at some point, you know, once I, I developed a, a measure of confidence and sort of standing up for myself, then I had, I, I had less of a problem going there, so to mm. speak. 
but it's not, again, we're talking for the most part, ancient history in terms of that. Now, I think uh, I, I really believe in, you know, being who I am, I have no problem in, in just kind of standing my ground verbally and things don't escalate. Devin, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. If that's okay. And the first one is who is one person who has influenced the mindfulness in your life? Oh, wow. There is, there was a woman named Anacrea King, who was uh, somebody I studied uh, the Western mysteries with. And she's now in her 90s. But she was somebody who I always admired, how calm she was, no matter what had happened. Like I, I knew her well at a time where she just had a lot of sadness and a lot of negative things happened. And she was always capable of finding uh, sort of like the gift within it. And I think that's part of it. I think part of the mindfulness for me and what I got from her is that uh, sometimes I don't know really what it means. Like, you know, I can say, oh, well, this terrible thing happened. How awful is that? Um, is it okay if I give this? I know that you're looking for quick answers. Is it all right if I give no, a longer answer? It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that uh, her mindfulness came from a place of, is that I really don't know what the result of this thing is. And I remember hearing a story that was taught to me. Actually, I heard it multiple times, once sort of like from a Jewish tradition and once from a Chinese tradition. And the, the story was there was this farmer and his wife, and they were getting older and poor. And the villagers knew that they wouldn't be able to handle the farm on their own. And they cried, what a terrible, awful thing that the farmer and his wife will just go to despair and demise. And, and then the following day, the son came in who realized that their parents were old and was going to help them with the farm. And the villagers cried, oh, this is a wonderful thing that this should happen. And then the following day, the, the son is working in the field and, and falls in a ditch and breaks his leg. And then the villagers grow, this is the worst thing that has ever happened. And then the following day, the the army comes looking for all able-bodied men to fight the terrible war and they couldn't take the, the sun. And the villagers cried, what a wonderful thing. And as you might imagine, the story goes on for an hour and a half where everything is wonderful and everything is terrible when really it's kind of, uh, I believe that more gets revealed, you know? Sure. So, so yeah, maybe this terrible thing happens, but it may impact you in a way that is, will be profound and wonderful. So I try to stay out of the results and just keep taking action. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's given me gratitude. It's, uh, I think, I, again, like I can't begin to tell you how important mindful is towards my day-to-day -day life. And I think it comes in a variety of forms and religion and spirituality and, and philosophy and all kinds of different doctrines and things like that. And I think what it's given me is to kind of look beyond how I might be feeling in every, any given moment to understand that I am part of this great, fantastic thing called life. And I get to appreciate that thing. And again, some moments and some days are more difficult than others. But overall, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. So, and I think maintaining that mindfulness, I think getting started in it is very challenging because we want to fall back on old ideas. Yes. 
uh, you know, it's like I was raised in a certain way. So I, I keep thinking, well, I'm that guy. And the truth of the matter is I'm not that guy anymore. And I haven't been that guy for many years. So, uh, you know, having that gratitude, but, you know, you stay on, you stay on the wheel, so to speak. You keep, you know, you keep working on yourself and remaining conscious. Uh, the more that happens, all these other doors start opening up. You start, you know, I started developing more gratitude, more compassion for other people. Um, and I think that sensibility has just kind of evened out, shall we say, the sharp edges of my life. Right. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. Well, I think there's a physiological thing that goes on when we get bad news or we're agitated and that becomes more shallow breaths that yeah. becomes uh, uh, less awareness. I, I think there's just things that go on. And the first thing that I do is if I'm getting something and sometimes it's even like really good news. Sometimes it's just like <sighs> I try to almost automatically go into sort of like a slower breathe, a slower breath. I want to fill my lungs up just to either breathe in this good news or just acknowledge, okay, here's this thing that's going on, but I don't need to be flipped out by it. So why don't I just take long, slow breaths? Hmm. So if you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that book be? Probably, and this is maybe redundant almost, I, I would probably recommend the Tao Te Ching, um, which is, you know, 5,000 years of, of, I think, mindfulness. Um, probably, one of, probably one of the more instrumental books that I've ever read. There's also a, a book by, uh, it's uh, something called Some Answered Questions that was by uh, Abdul Baha which is, and you have to kind of find the right edition. It's the, the latest edition. It's a Baha'i uh, uh, book. And it is, I think it's really clear. I think there's a lot of beauty in it. But mm. there's so many good books. I'm a, I'm a book, complete book nerd. Mm. Well, I really enjoy the Tao Te Ching. And uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer, of course, wrote the book based on on that. He did an essay on every verse of the Tao Te Ching, and his book was called uh, Change Your Mind, Change Your Life. I don't know if you've read that. You know, I, I read uh, uh, Dwayne Dyer a, I mean, many years ago, but I, I totally want to read that book now. I absolutely yeah. want to see what he has to say on it. Yeah, I found it very, very good, very interesting. I listened to it many, many times in my car when I was driving, so I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, so do you have an app you would recommend which is related to mindfulness or maybe one that someone you know uses? Oh, geez, I'll be honest with you. I don't use apps for the most part. I mean, other than the most simplistic kind of like take pictures kinds of apps. I, I tend to not use them. Do you have any great recommendations for me? I'm well, always open. I, uh, I don't use as many apps as I used to. And I, I like the timer because, you know, if I'm meditating, I just set the timer, but I can set a timer in, in the app called insight timer, I N S I G H T insight timer. And I like to meditate silently, but in Insight Timer, you can choose a, a bell or a chime that will go off at the end. Or if you want to, you can have intermittent chimes as mm. well. 
and choose the type of bell you want to ring. And there are all sorts of other choices if you want guided meditations or anything like that. So I find it's quite helpful. That sounds terrific. Good. I, I like that. My, my wife uses a meditation app. I wish I used the name, but it's, or I knew, I remember the name, but basically uh, it's her reading the, the biorhythms and it's kind of more, I think, uh, sort of like ambient music and, and some biorhythms that help her achieve different levels of consciousness. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it's been fascinating talking with you. You've, you've uh, had an interesting life so far, and it's awesome that you share it in your stories, in your writing, and you share the stories of your father. So I'm excited for when the book comes out. And uh, so how can we get our hands on a copy of this book? You know, honestly, you can kind of find it in pre-sale on Amazon and Powell's, uh, IndieBound, uh, Barnes and Noble all have it, I think. Uh, so uh, it's going to be available September 18th. I have, I'm one of the few copies. I have the, uh, the uh, matter of fact, I think you might have a copy if, if uh, might have sent one to you. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be available everywhere. And I think people uh, can find it uh, or find more about it if they're interested. Am I allowed to share my website absolutely i'd love you to share your website and and as you mentioned about the book i have if you send it to me i haven't received it yet okay then i will double check i think i will look forward to it because i really am excited about reading this book yes tell us your website how can we connect with you uh yeah and you can connect to me with at devangalladay.com uh, and that will have book-related material, or specifically, if you want to kind of get a synopsis, you can go to devangalladay.com forward slash dad. Mm. And let me make sure that we get the spelling out there. Devin is D-E-V-I-N, and Galladay is G-A-L-A-U-D-E-T, Galladay. So go to devangalladay.com and check out everything that Devin is offering there and and order this book because it's it's going to be a fun read i think i, I think it is uh, i i think what i do i it took me about seven years to write it because as you might imagine it was a really important story for me i think it's you know our fathers our parents the people who raise us it's seminal stuff of who yes. it is that we are so i really tried to you know kind of keep the ridiculousness in it uh, and embrace all of our foibles. And so, you know, I think it's a fun page turning read and, and I certainly hope uh, people who read it will enjoy it. Well, and that's one of the reasons I invited you on the show, Devin, because I detected that fun element, that silliness, that I thought there's something here that I'm fascinated by and I really look forward to talking to you. So that's why I invited you on the show and I'm so glad I did. It's been really great. Do you have any any final words for us? Honestly, this is a great show. I mean, Bruce, I really appreciate the opportunity and I think in terms of mindfulness that I kind of think that I came from the wrong side of the tracks. I was not sort of genetically engineered to be mindful. And I think that if I can do it, anybody can. And it really just starts by just putting it out there that you, you know, that you want to kind of 
be able to look at yourself. I mean, read the Tao Te Ching. There's so many great books out there that sort of like just embody what it is to be mindful and you can do it too. Yes, for sure. So Mindful Tribe, again, check out devingalladay.com, D-E-V-I-N-G-A-L-A-U-D-E-T.com and uh, get yourself a copy of this book. I think you're going to be glad you did. So Devin, you have a great rest of your day and thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Bruce. Really grateful. You're welcome. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or episode number into the search bar. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen. Maybe it's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever. Hit subscribe and share. Subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Subscribe and share, share, share. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.